Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. You have to be careful sending Mark emails because he may talk about them up front and use a funny voice. Just little things I've learned. Uh, all right. So if you have your Bibles, please flip open to Acts chapter 8. So if you've been with me uh, as we've been going through Acts, we've been doing this series called Family History. And the idea has been, let's take a look at the beginning of the church and what we can learn from there. Uh, well, we can see our story, where we come from, how we lived as Christians back then, how we should live now. Uh, the last time I was with you all, we saw the martyrdom of Stephen. So the church in Jerusalem growing exponentially, and they begin receiving persecution. But as that's going on, God continually delivers them. The last time we spoke, there's finally this it feels like the rubber hits the road a little bit. Stephen is murdered. And after Stephen is stoned for being a believer in Christ, uh, this is what happens. And we're going to look at this together. So let's start. Um, I'm going to set this up. We're going to read Acts 8, 1 through 8. But I want you to keep your Bibles open because that's going to set up the two stories we're going to look at today. I'm going to do it pretty quickly, I think. So here we go. Let's read together. And Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. <clears throat> Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray together for the blessing of the word. Father, we thank you that you are here, you are with us, your spirit guides us. You promise that those who seek you will find you. May we find you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've heard me preach for a while, you know I really like movies a lot. Um, one of the coolest things I got to do is when I was in seminary, I didn't get paid for it, which is why I still don't do it, but when I was in seminary, I got to write movie reviews for a Relevant Magazine, and it was just a blast, and uh, movies have always Film and filmmaking has always played a, a role in my life. Well, one of, uh, one of my all-time favorite movies that not a lot of people have seen, but some have, was Best Years of Our Lives. It's a 1946 film. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, what makes it so amazing is it's about these three veterans who come back from World War II, but it's filmed within seven months of the end of World War II. And so it's a, it's a very fresh, like as you watch it, it's people really wrestling with World War II very close to the actual event. And we follow these three veterans. We look at one of them who's lost his hands and has these hooks instead of hands. And the actor they cast was a, tr a veteran who had actually lost his hands and had hooks instead and navigated his coming back home and trying to figure out how to work his way in the world. We look at uh, a man who comes back and has missed the most formative years of his family growing up without him uh, and doesn't really know what to do. And the first time he comes back, he doesn't know how to engage with them and takes them all out to a bar because that's just what he does. Uh, and the final man is this <clears throat> gentleman who was 
an absolute champion pilot in the war, um, a hero. And when he returns home, you learn that he's not so much a hero at home, that he comes from a rough area that the woman he married has been very unfaithful to him and uh, that he has a hard time keeping a job. Well, this last character, Captain Fred Derry, has one of the most iconic scenes in film history, which is uh, the people making the movie found a field of these, um, these former World War II bombers, like B-52s and those planes, and just being taken apart. And the scene in the movie, Captain Fred Derry, who he's lost his wife, he's lost his job, he doesn't know what his place is in this new world, wanders through, finds this field, and wanders through this field of broken down, destroyed planes that he used to master and used to fly with courage and be praised for his work. And finally, after going through row after row of these empty, forgotten planes, he climbs up into one and he sits in the cockpit and stares through the dirty glass. And as the audience, we begin to hear the echo of what's going on in his head. We hear engines running and gunfire and flak exploding. But we never leave the image of this broken man sitting in his broken plane, disconnected from the only thing that ever gave him purpose. Well, I think this is a pretty good picture of a little bit of the human experience. We have some sense of what things should be like. Somehow we have in our heads a picture of a fully just society, of a fully functioning body, of true contentment and happiness, even though we've never really experienced them. We never really have experienced a fully just society or a fully functioning body or full, true contentment and happiness. We have this sense that we should be flying the plane a thousand feet in the air, but instead we're in the ruin on the ground hearing the echoes of sounds of something more real. We are cut, as I think C.S. Lewis would say it, we're cut off from some far-off country that we know exists but we've never experienced. Conservatives believe it's in the past, and we need to get back there. Liberals believe it's in the future, and we need to build it. And there are libraries full of self-help books, and hospitals full of doctors, and churches full of pastors, and buildings full of therapists, and podcasts full of gurus, always trying to tell us how to reach that far-off country. And if you can't reach it, don't worry. There's drugs, alcohol, Netflix, and gaming to smooth over that path, and that pain of longing. And into this broken, wandering through the ruins world, Jesus, God incarnate, comes and says, you're right. That sense of inadequacy that you have, you're right. We have been cut off. We are inadequate. The whole human race has been co-opted into rebellion against God since before we were born. But I, Jesus says, am the way, the truth, and the life I am the way back to what you have never experienced, but you cannot forget. And ever since Jesus came and said that, God's people have been on mission to share this truth, and more importantly, to share this person, Jesus, with the world. And this is the crucial bit to everything that's going to anchor what we're looking at. The way back to that far-off country. It's not a method or a culture or a belief system or a philosophy or a technique or a new book, it's a person, the person of Jesus. 
And because Jesus is the way, this is going to anchor our thoughts today. Because Jesus is the way, we live a Jesus-focused mission. And what I want to look at here is I want to look at two Philip. We've, we've just met Philip. I want to look at two encounters Philip has, two missionary encounters. And the first person has failed to see that the goal of this is Jesus, that Jesus is the way. And the second person does see that reality. So the first person, let's get right into it, is Simon the Magician. And uh, before we jump in, just a few things. One is, as this is happening, as Saul is, is coming up and there's this persecution in Jerusalem, you can imagine the apostles and the people connected to the church feeling like, whoa, what's going on? Because God has thus far delivered them, sometimes dramatically, like brought them out of prison, all these other kinds of things. And Stephen dies, he's stoned, and suddenly Saul is, is opening the doors and ravaging the church, and we, it would not be hard to imagine that they're going through something similar to what the disciples went through after Jesus died. I always wonder about those three days when Jesus is in the ground, what was running through their heads, the, the level of disappointment and disorientation. And I imagine they may be in that same spot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the church was triumphant. Jesus rose from the grave, and we should have victory. Why does it look like we're being destroyed right now? Well, as is typical with God, right? The thing that looks like ultimate defeat is just another way forward for the kingdom of God. And so what happens is this actually moves the church forward. It spreads people out of Jerusalem, and they go. And guess what? When they go... They're talking about Jesus, and the gospel is going forth, and suddenly it's going forth even faster than if Saul had never done anything like this. The persecution becomes a catalyst for the mission going forth, whereas before it was just rooted in Jerusalem, now we see the good news of the kingdom of God going forth to all the nations, and if you're here today and you don't have a Jewish lineage, this is probably where your story starts. This is where we can trace and say, this is where it begins for us. This is where we begin being invited into the people of God. Well, the character we hone in on right now is Philip, and we don't know much about Philip, and he gets this one chapter, and it's glorious. If you're in the Bible and you get this one chapter, sweet, you know? Uh, most people in the scriptures don't come off looking great. It's like Joshua looks really good, and Philip, maybe that's about it, and all of the women in the Gospels look really good. So there you go, okay. Men get smashed. All right, but... One of these guys is Philip, and all we know about him is he, like Stephen, served the widows. Uh, he was elected to serve the widows, which was the church valued very highly, even if the world didn't, and that's basically all we know about him. But we see he begins to go, and he begins to preach, and he has these two encounters. And the first one is with this guy, Simon the Magician. And I want to look at this, so let's look together. Let's look starting in Acts 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we get this character, Simon the Magician, and a brief word on the magic bit. We don't have indication of 
what this means or looks like. It seems like it's some kind of charms, incantations, those kinds of things. Um, is he actually doing something powerful? Is there some kind of demonic force at play? Maybe. Is there not? Maybe. Is it trick? I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us uh, any kind of indication. I mean, the one thing we can say is, as he watches Philip performing these miracles through the Spirit of God, he's amazed. So there may be a sense that he's like, that is something different, right? Um, uh, so my inclination is to say that he's a little bit smoke and mirrors. Could be wrong, but there you have it. Uh, that's, that sounds like a conversation for another time, late at night. Uh, anyway, all right. But the, the thing, main thing that matters here is that the people believe that Simon has magical ability. They claim that he's basically kind of on level with God, and he's very cool with that association, right? He has worked to cultivate that. They view him as a spiritual sage. And it seems like things are going well. He believes the gospel. He's baptized. But then we get this. So follow with me at 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying... Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. All right, so what's, what's just happened here? What's going on? I mean, this is a trippy story. So why did the apostles respond that way? And if we read in the ESV, the translation's a little light. When Peter says, may your silver perish with you, it's a little bit like, hey, you and your money can go to hell. I mean, it's, that's kind of where he's at. I don't say that flippantly. I, that's actually kind of the intent of that line. So what is so offensive about what Simon does there? Well, firstly, I think what we can say is he fails to see that the relationship with God, that what God is giving him, is a gift, right? The fact that he thinks he can earn some relationship with God communicates that he thinks of himself somewhat as an equal with God. Yes? I mean, when... You trade money with someone. It's a way of we both have something that one person needs. I have a service. You have money. We trade. We trade as equals. Exchanging money is something you do with equals. But as Paul will tell a crowd much later in Acts, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There's this twisted version of the story of the Bible that comes up every now and then, and this version of the story says, well, God was basically this insecure narcissist at the beginning of time, and there weren't enough people around to tell him how good-looking he was, 
And so he made a bunch of people, and he wants these people to worship him, and if he doesn't, he gets angry. And this version of the story that I occasionally hear is basically, in the beginning, God was lonely, so he made people to fill his ego. Now, obviously, this is a self-flattering delusion, because it implies that we have something that God lacks. The Bible story begins with a God enjoying full and complete fellowship and communion within the Trinity himself. God, Father, and the Holy Spirit are perfect community, delighting in the perfect good, which is himself, God. And God creates us to share in the joy of that community. It's an overflow. It's not because he is lonely. It's not because he lacks anything. He has all he needs. He cannot buy anything from God. He does not need your service or your money or your good intentions. He has come to invite you to himself. It is a gift and a relationship. And if at any point we feel that we have something unique to offer God, that if God doesn't get it from us, he won't get it somewhere else, we were in a very dangerous place. There are a lot of faithful men and women who have gotten to a point where they felt like what they were doing was so important that God needed them. And so many terrible stories start with that feeling, that realization. The gift, of course, that... Simon asks for, too, is interesting. He's saying, what does he want here? He wants power. He wants sustained influence over other people. Let me give you money, and you give me this, and I'll use this kind of religion, spirituality, to stay powerful and meaningful and significant and relevant and hip and yada, yada, so forth and so on. Simon, by offering money, is revealing he thinks that he is equal to God. And he's revealed what he really wants, continued powers over others and power over nature. Uh, and I would want to say this, too, before we move on from Simon. One of the dangers about us kind of in the West is the way we move towards anything is, is frequently from a consumerist bent, right? Uh, we, we are driven by what we can buy, and we think we can buy more. Like, you watch commercials, and they're frequently advertising some kind of, you can pay and have better health, you pay and be better looking pay and your family is happy now. You know, the, these things that sh are just outside the grasp of what money can actually do. I hesitate to make this uh, illustration because I don't want to. I don't want to come. Uh, I don't want to come down on different types of churches too much. But there was this one time my family and I we visited a church in another state. I won't tell you what it is. Yada yada. But as we walked in, it became clear that the church's grid for approaching the gospel was through consumerism. Uh, at every point, there was like this choose-your-own-adventure of worship, like the traditional service was over here, the modern was over here. At various points, you could do communion or this or this, and it was clear, it, it felt like we were shopping. And in one of those priceless, amazing, you-could-hug-your-kid moments, when we first walked in, my eldest son is like, are we in Ikea? Um, <laughs> <laughs> from the mouth of babes, right? Now, I don't bring this up to sound, to be self-righteous about it. We do this in our own ways. But the point of consumption, right, is that I make a choice, I get what I need, and I leave feeling good. And if we think that's what church is about, if we think that's what Christianity is about, if we think that's what Jesus is about, is I, I get what I need, what I want, what I choose, and then I leave feeling good, you are going to be very disappointed in Christianity. 
I read uh, the other day by Brett McCracken. He was talking about how institutions can be affirming or transforming, transformational. And right now, our institutions are very affirming. That's the main goal of most institutions. And consumerism, if we think about it, is strictly affirmational, right? The customer is always right. But the church, while being accepting, is ultimately supposed to be a transformational institution because God is a transformational God. We don't come to God and leave the same, right? If we come to God and who we were before is who we are when we leave, I would say we didn't meet him. God is a transforming God. The church is a transforming institution. And we see here the apostles recognizing that. Right? When he offers money, they say, you have to change. This is a transforming interaction with God, and it doesn't work this way. It's not about you getting what you want. It's about coming before the most holy God, which, by the way, anything that you want is going to be just so pitiful compared to what God has to offer you. When we come to Christianity, we don't find something to possess, but something to submit to. The one who buys is the one who owns, the one who controls, and we do not buy, own, or control our religion. We don't do these things because it's not a religion of consumption, but one of relationship. We cannot buy, own, or control God. You do not have something that God needs. He wants you, and he gives you himself freely. And thank God, because all the money in the world could not buy this gift. So we see this story first. Christianity is not something to be bought. God will not be bartered with in this way. And then we move on to the second story where we see the flip, the other side of it, the Ethiopian eunuch. So let's look at this one together. I want you to start with me in verse 26. So we're in 826. We're staying just in chapter 8 today. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go down to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And some of you will recognize this as Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked to, said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told, them, told him the good news about Jesus. So a few things to note. Both of these people, Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch, are powerful in their own way. But the Ethiopian eunuch is someone who, he doesn't, he doesn't have a fully 100% Jewish lineage. He's been cut off from Jerusalem in some way, and so he's clearly making pilgrimages back to Jerusalem to worship. And his role as a eunuch would have meant that he didn't get full access to the temple. 
he is already someone who's used to kind of being on the outside. And he has a humility about him, right? As he's returning, he's reading, and the reason that uh, Philip can tell what he's reading is people would have been reading aloud. He must have been pretty wealthy because he can afford his own scroll. He's reading Isaiah aloud. Philip comes up, and when he asks him this question, the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't say, I'm very powerful and command a bunch of people. Who are you? He invites him up into the chariot. Explain this to me. And this is the beginning of the African church. And just as a brief aside, before any white European comes to know the gospel, we have this story. The gospel is not a Western creation, does not belong to the West. It starts in the Middle East and spreads several places before going there, including Africa with this Ethiopian eunuch. Well, this is an interesting moment when he asks, how can I unless someone guides me? Leslie Newbegin argued that life is a little like this. Imagine you're driving down the road and there's a construction site going up. And you look at the construction site and you can start to put some things together. You can say, well, it looks like there's an elevator shaft. Maybe that's a parking lot. And you can make some guesses, you know. That's, uh, I don't know, that's going to be a mall or a grocery store or whatever. You can make some assumptions. You can figure out some things. But... What you actually need is eventually you need somebody to put a sign out front which says, you know, soon opening Dick Sporting Goods or something like that. You need someone to actually tell you to complete the picture. Life works the same way. And Ecclesiastes, which y'all have been going through with Mark, is a lot about this. You cannot discover the meaning of life by looking at life itself. Many people have tried. You can come up with a lot of things. You can learn a lot of things. That's where the sciences, philosophies, all of these things. But at the end of the day, what we need is we need a revelation from God to bring it fully home. There are natural laws. We can make predictions. There seem to be some innate truths about biology and all these things. We live in a rational world, which is why we have math and sciences. But we do live in a fundamentally mysterious world apart from the revelation of God. And so we have to ask, how can I unless someone guides me? And Philip, who has, knows the story, who knows the story of we're wandering through these ruins, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, comes alongside to speak. And that is our role as the church as well, right? To put the sign out in front of the construction site and say, this is what's coming. This is what's being built. Now, the passage the Ethiopian is reading, as I said, is Isaiah 53. It's a prediction in the Old Testament that perfectly explains what's going to happen to Jesus. The first time I heard Isaiah 53 read, I was in high school I didn't actually think it was from the Bible. It was just too perfect <laughs> an explanation for Jesus. And I invite you to go back and read it on your own at some point. Uh, that must have been a great, I came up to my pastor. I was like, what book was that from? He's like, the Bible. <laughs> like, Whoa. All right. Uh, <clears throat> now notice this about the Ethiopian's question. The Ethiopian doesn't ask what or how. He says, who? Who is this about? Simon asked how. How can I have this power? How can I attain this? And the Ethiopian says, who is this about? Simon is attracted by power and influence, and the Ethiopian is attracted by the person of Jesus before he even knows that it's Jesus. For much of the history of Western thought, I'm going to get philosophical on you briefly, we've wanted something that Christianity does not offer. We have wanted a faithless, relationshipless belief system. We want a checklist of box, boxes that we can go down, feel good about. Yeah, I believe in this. 
sign along the dotted line, there's my faith. When Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am, he was trying to create this neutral, perspectiveless, risk-free, objective way of knowing that I can get there all by myself and totally have it. I don't need something else. And I think a lot of people want the same thing from Christianity. But here's the thing. The question that the scriptures ask repeatedly is not, do you believe these particular tenets of belief? The question that is asked is, do you love me? It's a relational question. All of Greek philosophy is blown to bits with the opening of John 1. The word or the truth became flesh, became a person, became someone with whom we relate. And as Leslie Newbegin puts it, from whom I'm taking a lot of this, he says, the locus, our confidence is not in the competence of our own knowing, but in the faithfulness and reliability of the one who is known. The weight of the confidence rests there and not here with us. I do not possess the truth, he says. Rather, I'm confident that the one in whom I have placed my trust, the one to whom I am committed, is able to bring me fully to the full grasp of what I now only partly understand. The way I explain this to my students is Christianity is not like finding a new scientific law. It's like getting married. Now, when I married Jessica 10 years ago, you know, I'm well aware that she's going to change. I'm going to change. She's going to change me. What I couldn't know at the time is I'm going to start liking this weird drink called kombucha. You know, things are going to go differently for me. Has anybody made, she makes kombucha, and I appreciate it as an art form, but the thing looks like this organism from alien movies. I mean, it's terrifying. Anyway, uh, I know that Jessica's going to change me in some ways. So submitting myself to this, hitching myself to somebody, could seem really scary. Am I going to recognize myself in 20 years after uh, being affected by Jessica, right? So why do I go through? Why, why do I go through? Why does she go through? That's a better question. Uh, but why do I go through with that? It's because I, I love her character, right? And I know whatever changes she's going to make, I, I believe, are going to be guided by this character that I love. And there'll be changes I love too, right? And her priorities are things I love. I love that she goes after Jesus, and I expect her to continue doing that. And I imagine that that'll be great. The same thing is true with Christianity. We don't put our faith in this kind of blank system. We put our faith on a person. We say, I don't know how this is going to change me or affect me, take me, but I do trust the person. I trust the person of Jesus. And Isaiah 53, that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading, is a passage that tells you why you might trust Jesus. Because like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He accepted injustice that we might stand before God. He demonstrated his love fully to us. So I want to end here. Look how the story ends. If you look down at, uh, let's see, let's go to verse 36. So verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, 
And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And many people would say that the Ethiopian eunuch went back to his homeland and begins the Christian church in Ethiopia. But the part I want to end on leaves, goes on his way rejoicing. Before we, um, before I started preaching, we, we read Isaiah 56. It talked about how for the eunuch, for the foreigner who had been cut off, he's promised and granted the fullness of God's presence. He's not condemned to sitting in the cockpit of rusty planes. One day the engine will start and he'll get to the sky. So if you're a Christian, what I would say to you is we have every reason to leave rejoicing. And if you look at your life in the last stretch and you say, I, I feel really dry, I feel like I have not done much rejoicing, I don't sense much of the joy of the Lord, my invitation to you is to look at the person of Jesus, to pray to him, to draw closer to Jesus more so than any system or anything. Come to the person of Christ. He's very good. And if you're not a Christian, what I would say to you is that while there are proofs that I think are valuable for the gospel, while I do think that much of what we've learned in academia seems to time and time again point towards the creator, that ultimately the invitation is not towards a philosophy or anything like that, but the invitation is to God himself in the flesh, to Jesus. For some reason, though we rejected him, God decided that he would not reject us and came to us. And so if you have not entered into that relationship with Christ, my charge for you is rejoice for the first time. Draw near to Jesus. Don't ask how or what, but ask who is this one who came for me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you came for us. I thank you that the gospel is worldwide. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but your word lives forever. You live forever. Thank you for the mystery of the gospel. Thank you that you came for us. Father, in places where we have been distracted from you, bring our attention back to you. Help us to remember the joy. Help us to remember our first love. We are first and foremost those who seek after and follow and commune with Jesus. May we do that this week. And in Jesus' name, amen.